Let's turn to the book of Jonah. Thank you, Robert, for reading that section. We're not going to cover all of chapter two today. We're going to get through most of it, but I've entitled this sermon this morning, uh, A Fishy Salvation. Now, uh, we're not talking about salvation from hell. We're talking about a physical deliverance we're going to look at this morning where God uh, created and appointed a, an organic submarine, if you will, to, to house Jonah. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But last week, if you remember, we left off with Jonah and the mariners. They were in a very precarious situation. If you recall, it was all because Jonah had run away from God, right? A theologically sound man of God rejecting God. And we thought, how can that happen? But it does happen. We do, we do the same thing. Often we know more truth than we apply. We kind of made that point last week. Now, one of the reasons he ran, we said, is because he didn't want his name associated with the prophetic message to give the Ninevites or the Assyrians an opportunity to change their mind and not face the judgment of God internationally, people were looking for the Assyrians to be judged. People hated these people because of the terrorists that they were. And so by the time we pick up in our story this morning in verse 14, they've already determined through lots that Jonah is the cause of the violent storm. Um, He had done something foolish. He admitted to this. It was almost like, you know, when you've ever said something dumb and you're like, man, I wish I could grab those words and bring them back in. But Jonah had admitted, I've run from God. I've run from the very God who created the sea, and I'm running away from him on the very sea that he created. And he probably said, oh, that was dumb. Probably when he verbalized it, he said, oh, that was not a good idea. That probably is not going to work out well. And sure enough, they're in a storm that keeps getting worse. And so the mariners are blown away that he could be that foolish to try to run away from the God who created the sea by trying to get away from him on the sea. And so Jonah says, the solu- here's the solution, just throw me in the water. And we've got a storm raging like the mariners have never seen before. Sure death. It's a suicide wish. And again, it points to the heart of Jonah, even at this point, he says, because at that point, he could have said, you know what, Lord, I'll go to Nineveh. Just stop the storm. I'll go back. I'll go to Nineveh. He doesn't say that. He says, I'd rather die. I'd rather you throw me into the water than me to go to Nineveh and deliver that message. And so the mariners are like, we're not doing that. If your God is this big and powerful and he's creating this type of storm, we're going to take you back to land. Well, they start rowing and it's like God lifted their boat out of the water. Their oars weren't going anywhere. (laughs) They weren't making any progress. And so finally we pick up in verse 14 because God has now got other plans than to just take Jonah back to shore. He's got uh, something that he feels he needs to accomplish in the life of Jonah and he's going to do it in a very unique way. And so in verse 14, we see the mariners are going to offer up a prayer. It says this, therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. We're going to see a pattern here. And at the end of chapter one, we're going to see a pattern in two. It's repeated. And what we're going to see is a crisis, a prayer and vows. Okay, we're going to see it in the the heathen mariners, and we're going to see it in the life of Joseph. So the crisis here is a storm. Now they're praying. And we see their prayer starts with a therefore, based on this storm of all storms they were in. And what we see is that, that, that these specific circumstances drove them to a decision. And their decision was to pray, because they were about to have to make a decision that they weren't comfortable with. Very 
uncomfortable with. What's really ironic here is when you look in the text, those of you that um, most, I think most of our Bibles do this, but when you look at 14, you'll see the word LORD, all caps, not just the first letter, but all caps. Anytime you see that in the Old Testament, you know what it indicates, right? Yahweh. It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. So here the, the heathen mariners now know the name of Jonah's God, and they're addressing him directly. They're addressing the personal covenant-keeping name of the God of the Jews. And this is what they say. Don't let us perish for this man's life. I, I realize Jonah needs to go down for this. Don't take us with him kind of deal. And at the same time, don't charge us with innocent blood. You could see their hearts. They're trying to get him back to land. They don't want Jonah to die, but they're in between a rock and a hard place. They can't get Jonah to land. They can't leave him on the ship or they're going to go down. And they really don't want to throw him into the water because I think in the back of their mind, even though Jonah's told them to do that, they're like, how's this God going to react when we throw one of his prophets in the water? Like this... We're, we're a little uncomfortable with any solution here. And so they're, they're praying, Lord, just please, <laughs> I, I beg of you, don't hold us accountable for this man's life. He said, uh, they said, you've done as it pleased you. Again, probably a reference to a bunch of things that, that they had cast lots. God had show, uh, clearly shown them that Jonah was the culprit. And additionally, jo- uh, God was uh, up opposing their efforts to save Jonah's life. They were trying to get him back to shore. And so not only on top of that, but the intensity of the storm continued to get worse. I mean, We saw that phrase repeated in the text, right? The storm grew more tempestuous. We saw that repeated multiple times. It was bad enough at the beginning that they unloaded all the cargo. They they just got rid of the cargo to save their lives, and it just kept getting worse. And so they, they were in big trouble, and they knew it. And so it was clear now that God was in completely control of all these circumstances. They're just trying to figure out, okay, we know what Jonah wants us to do, Lord, what do you want us to do? It's kind of the idea. They're crying out for assistance here. They don't necessarily get an answer, but they've got to make a move because if they don't, the storm's taking them down. And that's what we see in verses 15 through 16. We're going to see, uh, actually, their fear is going to transfer from fearing the storm to when the storm gets calm, now they're going to fear the Lord. We're going to see this transfer of fear, and then we're going to see worship. Look at verses 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Uh, The men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they took vows. Notice again the immediate results. Right when they throw Jonah in the sea, it ceased from raging. The Hebrew could literally be translated, the sea stopped being angry. It's, it's It's a personified phrase here. It personifies the ocean. It stopped being angry. And so this, this wasn't God's original plan for Jonah, right? God's original plan was, Jonah, here's a word. You're in Gath Heeper. Jonah takes off northeasterly toward Assyria, delivers the message, and comes home. That was God's original plan. Jonah had thrown a little bit of a wrench in there due to his choices, right? Not only did he not go northeasterly, he went southwesterly, and then he was trying to go real westerly, like the, the end of the world westerly to, to Spain. This is where he was on this boat on the way to to Spain. But we're also going to see now that that God adjusts according to Jonah's choices. And now he's got an alternate plan to accomplish his purposes. And I love that. This is such a great book, by the way, to see how God never violates our volition. He gives us the ability to choose. 
And yet he's still sovereign and in control enough that he can still move history the way that it needs to go. And imagine doing that not only with one person, but 7 billion people on the planet. I mean, we got a powerful God. It's just incredible to see how he can do these things. And so we're seeing this in the book of Jonah. He's going to still accomplish his purpose. He's still working with the prophet. He hasn't given up on him. He's still working with him. He's got another plan. It's, it's a crazy, wild plan, but we got, sometimes we got a crazy, wild God. I mean, he's big like this, man. He just does things that just blow our minds, and that's what we're going to see in this story. Even though you've all heard this story since you were kids, you know what's coming, but don't let the, the familiarity not blow your mind away still with the incredible nature of who he is, what he can do. And so it says they feared the Lord exceedingly. So it's, it's funny because they were, they were afraid of the storm. Now the storm stops and it's like they're more afraid, but for a different reason. It's, it's kind of unique to see that. And here's the response, fear and worship. The sea becomes calm, they fear and worship. In fact, it's the same exact word used in verse 10 earlier. Now the fear is directed to the Lord. Now the fear has been transferred into a different area. You know, it kind of reminds me as when my kids were little, you know, they would oftentimes they'd come running out of the room saying, there's a, there's a boogeyman under my bed or there's somebody in my room. And I'd be like, okay, the first time I'd go in there and I'd check it out. I'm like, no, see, it's, it's all clear. That's just, that's just a shirt hanging on the wall. I know it looks like it's moving, but it's just, it's just a t-shirt, right? No, it's under my bed. Okay. And I get under the bed and climb in. Nope, no, no monsters in here. You go to bed. Then they would come out a second time, and I would tell them, I'd look them in the eyes sometimes, and I don't know if this was right, but I was trying to get on with my night, and I would say, you better fear me more than you fear that make-believe monster under your bed, and you better get back in bed. And, I, and it's kind of that mindset here. It's like they, they were afraid of the storm killing them. Now they're afraid that of a God who can actually stop a big storm, and they just transferred their fear, rightfully so. And I think the fear transferred here was a combination of terror, but it was also that aspect of fear that we often see in the Bible of respect, honor, awe. They're like, wow, Yahweh, you blow me away. You're incredible that you can slow this thing down and stop this down. Remember too earlier, I mean, go, just go back up to verse five. What were they doing earlier? They were crying out to their gods. Every God that they thought that maybe they had offended, they were crying out. And you know the problem with that is their gods didn't have ears. Their gods weren't even alive. They didn't even exist. They didn't, no one was listening to them. But in verse 14, there was a God who heard them. There was a God who listened to them. There was a God who did something for them that they could not do for themselves. And they transfer their fear to this God. Jonah's God in one moment could put a stop to the sea. Kind of reminds me of a story in the New Testament. Group of men on a sea in a crazy storm, the son of God, Jesus Christ, asleep, relaxed. The storm's going to take these guys down. And in Mark 4, 39 through 41, Jesus arose and rebuked the wind. Notice the, the connection between fear here and our story in Jonah. He rebuked the wind. He said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, not because of the storm, but notice why they feared now. They said to one, or one another, who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? Wow, that's awesome. Wow, Jesus, you're awesome. <laughs> We're afraid in a different way now. 
We, we honor and respect you. We start to see who you, who you really are and what you're capable of. Now, had they known that, that Jesus was also present in the story of Jonah, they'd be like, oh man, he's already done this before. This is no big deal, you know? But this is a, a connection. You see that fear transferring. Very, very um, just interesting point here as we look at these mariners. Additionally, it says that they offered a sacrifice. The word in Hebrew means a slaughter. It means they, they killed an animal of sorts. They sacrificed an animal and offered to God. Now, many pagan religions did that in the day, but there was a very unique way in, in, in which Jews offered sacrifices. Maybe this happened on the boat. I, I don't know if there were animals there. They had obviously discharged some cargo earlier. I don't know if that was the animals, or maybe they did it when they got to shore. But what's really fascinating about the verb tense in the Hebrew is it indicates that they vowed to make sacrifices a continual thing. Okay? It wasn't like, yeah, Lord, let me just drop a tip in the offering plate this one time, right? Let me just, okay, yeah, here's your sacrifice. Thank you for getting us out of this mess. The idea was that these guys were going to move forward with the Lord going forward, that this storm had that kind of impact on them. And so it's just kind of interesting as they did that. Then it says they took vowed or vowed vows. Uh, the idea is they made this binding promise. They, they, they promised to meet certain conditions. And obviously, if you didn't meet the conditions, there was going to be disfavor. And it's so interesting because um, people do this today all the time. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, probably each one of us has done this at one time. Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I'll whatever, go to church, give money, volunteer, whatever the promise is, right? This, this happens a lot on battlefields where you've got uh, men and women fearful for their lives in a bunker. And they said, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll go, I will worship you. I'll go to seminary. I'll be a missionary to Africa, right? It's like all these promises and vows of what you're going to do. And um, anyways, this is what they're doing. They're, they're making a vow. Now, what we're going to see here as we go into chapter 2, we're not quite there yet because we're going to look at verse 17. What we're going to see is that when Jonah was thrown into the water, the storm on the surface ceased. But we're going to see is the storm underneath the surface kept going. And this is what we're going to see in the life of Jonah because not only is he going to get swallowed with a fish, we're going to see that in verse 17, he's going to describe in chapter 2 his experience before that fish came along and actually saved his life by swallowing him. He almost drowned in the scene. He's going to describe that experience here in chapter two. And we're going to see that the storm for Jonah was still raging. You know, it's that, it's that cartoon where a guy's walking around town with the cloud over his head and it's just raining on him. That's, that's Jonah here in chapter two. And it all ceased for everyone else. It's still ripping and roaring for Jonah. And so we're going to see in verse 17 that there is a divine deliverance. You know, you can imagine Jonah struggling, drowning. He sees this big fish coming. He, he starts to float into its mouth. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> I just got ate by a fish, right? That's just how I'm going to go. He gets into the fish. He's, he's like, whew, wait a minute. I can breathe. <laughs> I don't have, I'm not getting crashed as we're going to say. I'm not getting crashed into the, the reefs anymore. Like I can breathe. I can sit. I can think. And then he begins to realize, oh, this fish is God's gracious deliverance of me. Why would he do that for such a hard-headed prophet? I mean, I, I don't know. If someone rebels that directly against me, I'm like, yeah, swallow some water and keep swallowing some water. You know, like, I'm not looking at helping that person, right? I'm looking at just letting them to themselves. We're going to see that God is different than us. Praise God. He's different than us. That's really a, actually a good thing. 
Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And what you're going to see in the pages of Jonah, and in, I mean, we're starting to see it here. This is what Jonah, the book of Jonah, is known for, right, is the, is the fish. Um, by the way, notice it doesn't say whale. That's what we typically think. But it doesn't say whale. It says fish. But it's so fascinating because the book of Jonah, we, I mean, it's four short chapters. It's really probably in your Bible, depending on small, how small your print is. It might be like one page, two pages, a very short book. But in this, this short little section of Scripture, we have this condensed uh, conglomeration of divine miracles, just one after another, just one on top of another. But what's really fascinating about it is most of the divine miracles utilize natural phenomena, like, like a storm, like a fish, like in chapter four, we're going to see a tree, a worm, right? So all these divine miracles coming in using natural phenomenon or using existing materials. Now, one of the things that we pointed out earlier is we see really a, a couple of intentional actions taken by the Lord in chapter one. Verse one, he came to Jonah. Verse four, he sent out a great wind on the sea, right? That, he hurled it out. That's, that's the, the Hebrew emphasis. He, he hurled this wind out on the sea, and now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, the word prepared means that God had assigned or provided this fish, that he had assigned or provided this fish with an assignment. Now, the, the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of fish it is. So we can get totally lost. In fact, I've heard whole sermons trying to prove that certain fish exist out there that can swallow human beings. By the way, that is true. You can, you can research that. It's happened in history. There's uh, accounts of fish swallowing entire horses and then them finding a horse alive, fully, you know, fully put together inside of a big fish. So it doesn't matter. I mean, you can, you can do the research. You can fi- figure out what fish in the Mediterranean Sea is big enough to accomplish this. The point of the story is not trying to prove whether or not this could happen. It's to understand that there's a big God can create a fish that can do this. That's the point. And, and it's exactly what he did. And God commissioned this fish for the exact purpose of being there for this particular season and, and, and event for Jonah. And so he was adequately equipped, this fish was, to do exactly what God designed him to do, a human, protective, organic submarine for his profit. And that's exactly what this fish did. And so I mentioned this earlier. It seemed like this is uh, Jonah's final judgment, right? He's, oh, great. I mean, you could just see it in slow motion. He's floating into the mouth of the fish, and he's like, oh, I'm done. This is how it's going to end for me. But he gets in there, and he, it ends up being his full deliverance. See, his suicide attempt uh, had failed. And, 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 you know, it's so interesting because what's so unique about this is it drove Jonah to a place where Jonah is now forced to uh, confront the enormity of his rebellion. He has to in this way. God could have sent him a piece of wood to float on. God could have made Jonah a champion swimmer. God could have changed the, the organic nature of his lungs so that he could breathe in water like a fish for a time. He could have sent another boat but he let, and he prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. He chose this method to get his prophet's attention. It's just mind-blowing. So why the fish? <laughs> why not one of these other methods? You know, I think that's a good question. It's unique. It's out there. It's kind of like God to do things that we wouldn't expect him to do and just like blow our minds with what he does. 
but it was just a, a perfect way to preserve his life. It was a perfect way to give him a confined space. He couldn't get out. He was, he was locked in <laughs> to, to think and reflect. And we're going to see that that is what he does. By the way, too, I think we mentioned this in the introduction, but there's also a possibility that, that God utilized this method to further the, convince the Ninevites when Jonah eventually got there. Because remember, one of the gods they worshiped was a fish god named Dagon. And so if Jonah had any way communicated, man, I just spent three days and three nights in a fish, it would have actually got the Assyrians' attention and said, man, this guy's got a divine message. We need to listen to him, right? And, and who knows? You know, there's a lot of speculation. What did Jonah look like when he got out of the fish? You know, the stomach acids of the fish, was he all bleached white, you know, the hair over here, but bald over? I mean, did he, look, did he just look all messed up? We don't know. I mean, the text doesn't tell us, but it's definitely a possibility. So that might be why the fish. Again, just one more way to prepare the Assyrians to respond to the message that he was going to be giving. And then we know that he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. One of the cool things uh, about history is, is God is going to use this event in Jonah's life to foreshadow, to predict, to be a, a type of the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus uses it, Matthew 12. Uh, the, the people in that day were saying, give us another sign, show us another sign. And he says, there's not gonna be another sign for this generation except for the sign of Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So must the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? So he's, he's using the story of Jonah. By the way, he's verifying its historicity there. It's not just some myth, made up myth. Jesus said it happened. And he's using it to prove or to show that he is going to be resurrected. So great, great story. By the way, too, I, I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I did this as a young believer. I, I thought, man, he was in, Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights. And I started doing the math. I was like, wait a minute, Friday, Saturday, and then he was raised Sunday morning. And my Western mind's like, that's not 72 hours. Right? Three, three full days and three full nights. It's got to be 72 hours. Jewish reckoning counted any part of the day or any part of the night as a full day. So it could be a partial day on the front side, a partial day on the back side, and a full day in the middle. That could be three days and three nights from a Jewish way of reckoning. So again, I say that just to say we don't know how many hours Jonah spent in the fish, but it was in Jewish reckoning. It was three days and three nights that he spent in the fish, and it'd be great. it became this great foreshadow the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just kind of, you know, neat to see this story, this Old Testament story tie in to our Savior. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to find is as Jonah is sitting in this fish, God is using this as a crisis to drive him to pray. Oftentimes we get into a crisis and, you know, we realize that we've got nowhere else to turn but up. We, in fact, we spend most of the time in crisis and we go around, we look anywhere else horizontally but up. And then we, it's like, we like, oh yeah, what about God? Like, oh yeah, start, let's start thinking about that quicker. <laughs> That's a great option right out of the chute. Not after I've, ex uh, I've you know, totally exhausted my horizontal options. You know, I'm reminded of a quote from one of our past presidents. I wish presidents still talked like this, honestly. I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. That's Jonah right now. He is driven to a place where he literally has nowhere else to go. And guess what? 
That may seem painful. That may seem unfortunate. That may seem uncomfortable, but it's the best place any one of us can be. Hopefully, it doesn't take distress and calamity to get us there, but oftentimes it does. And so we see this in Jonah's life. Now, I want to make a couple of comments about Jonah's prayer before we get into it. And I want to be easy on Jonah. I'm going to be too hard. It's really, it's really easy thousands of years later to stand up here and pontificate about all the mistakes he made. You know, I've often joked that if someone made my life into a movie, uh, whoever watches it's going to have a bag of popcorn and say, what an idiot this guy is. Like, when is he going to learn, you know? So they'd be saying the same thing about us too. But I do want to point out a couple of things about Jonah's prayer that are absent from his prayer, at least recorded. We can make an argument. Maybe they're in there somewhere, but we don't have a specific recording of the following things. We actually don't have a specific confession of his sin. His sin was rebellion, His sin was disobedience. His sin was arrogance, thinking that he knew and understood what the Ninevites needed more than God. There were some very specific sins that he could confess that he didn't. Now, we are going to see that he cried out to the Lord. That's going to, we're going to see that uh, in verse two. That may have included confession. It's just not recorded, right? We don't see it there in the text. We also don't see a clear verbal expression of his willingness to go to Nineveh. You know, wouldn't you think I ran from God? I avoided his message to Nineveh. I've almost drowned. I was in, an, I was, uh, you know, in a boat where this storm you know, raged up. I just got swallowed by a fish. I'd probably say, you know what, God, I'll go. <laughs> just get me out of here. I'll go, right? We're not going to see him say that in here. Now, he does end up going. He does make a reference later on to he's going to pay what he vowed. Maybe that's a reference to that but he doesn't specifically say, or we don't have it specifically recorded. Number three, this is really ironic. He doesn't actually make a specific request to be delivered from the fish. He thanks God from saving him from drowning, but he doesn't say, can you get me out of this fish? (laughs) Never asked that question. And so you kind of put all these things together. You put together and and I kind of, we know where we're going in chapter four. Those, Those of you that know the story, Jonah ends the book mad the, the only prophet of God that got mad when people actually responded positively to his message. <laughs> Normally prophets, pastors, if you respond positively to their message, they like that. That's what they do it for. Jonah gets a positive response. He's ticked off and he ends the book ticked off. If you haven't noticed that before, <clears throat> when we go through the book. And so based on all these things, the base that he, based on the way he reacts at the end of the book, it's clear that Jonah, is, he's probably terrified in the fish, rightly so, probably terrified that he almost lost his life, rightly so. But I think in some small way in his heart, he was still stubbornly holding on to his hatred of the Ninevites, still hoping maybe God would choose somebody else. Maybe God would do this a different way because you don't see the specific things uh, back and forth. You know, and sometimes I used to think of the book of Jonah as, as somewhat of a yo-yo it's like, oh, he's in direct rebellion. Oh, he kind of re- is restored to fellowship in chapter two. And then, oh, he's back in rebellion in chapter four. And then he comes. I used to think of it, I'm not sure he ever yo-yos at all. I'm not sure. I think there are times where he's a little bit less vocal and le- a little less rebellious. I'm not sure if his heart ever gets reached in this entire book. I don't know. I don't know. I just, you, you see how it goes back and forth. But we see that he's driven to pray. And let's pick up his prayer here in verses one through two. <clears throat> then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. 
And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. And, and we're going to bring this out as we go through, but it's really a fascinating prayer because especially for those of you that love the book of Psalms, anybody in here like the book of Psalms? Okay, I, me too. So you're going to see in his prayer, Jonah knows the Psalms. In fact, what he's doing is he's quoting Psalms and he's quoting them in direct application to what he's going through. It's, it's amazing. We'll kind of look at the connection. And it just points out the fact again that Jonah Make no mistake, he was a man of God, he was theologically sound, he was doctrinally taught, and yet he was still capable of the most abject rebellion in God's eyes. Just incredible to remember that, that no matter how much you know, how much you think you know, that if we're not responding by faith, moment by moment, we're capable of the same exact type of rebellion that Jonah engaged in. We're capable of evaluating situations and saying, I don't care how God evaluates it. This is how I see it, and this is how I'm going to do it. We're capable just of that, and you could be the Awana champion from your home church, know all the scriptures in the world, and still be an absolute rebel when it comes to walking with the Lord. And we're going to see that in the life of Jonah. One thing that is cool is I think Jonah knew the Psalms well enough to knew that God had delivered David in many of his failures. And so now he's going back and saying, hey, God, could you do it one more time? I'm a failure. Maybe, maybe you'll deliver me is, is kind of the idea. And so we're going to see that he is praying. Now, this is the first instance recorded of Jonah praying in the book. Man, he wouldn't even pray when the storm was going on. Remember, he was sleeping. They had to wake him up. We don't have anything that he recorded. In fact, what was he going to say to the Lord, right? I, well, I totally rebelled against you, but can you save me anyways? And he just was like, ah, forget it. This is the first time he prays. He's driven to a point now where he is forced to pray. The storm didn't drive him to pray. The upset sailors didn't drive him to pray. The realization of him being thrown into the ship into raging waters did not drive him to pray. But the struggle of potentially drowning, which we're going to look at when we get to verse 3 through 6, and then being swallowed in the belly of fish finally got my man's attention. <laughs> finally captured his mind and said, maybe I ought to look up here. Maybe I ought to look to the Lord. And it's so, it's so ironic because you can view God in one of two ways by looking at this story. You could say, wow, God is really harsh and God is really mean and God is really, why is he being so difficult on Jonah? Or you can view God from a totally different perspective and say, look how loving he is. Look how gracious he is, knowing that he needed to amp up the circumstances to get Jonah's attention because God is after one thing. And if we don't take one other thing away from this message, I want you to take this. God wants relational intimacy with each one of you. And he is the faithful hound of heaven, as some commentator called him years ago. He will not stop in his pursuit of you. He wants relational intimacy with you. He will disrupt your circumstances to drive you to a place where you realize what he realizes and that you need him every moment of every day to actually enjoy anything in this life. Now you can say, oh, I enjoy stuff without God. You don't enjoy anything lasting without God. Sin does have pleasure for a season. The scriptures even teach that. We're saying that God wants something for Jonah that Jonah didn't even realize that he wanted for himself. He wanted intimacy. And he amps up the circumstances to drive Jonah to himself. Jonah is running away from him. God is running after him. 
And we see this through the circumstances that he puts into place. And I love, I, I love the word of God because it's so clear. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction and he answered me. You know, on the surface, that makes sense, right? Affliction means trouble, distress, calamity. It represented a state of very unfavorable circumstances. And then check this out with a focus on the emotional pain and distress of the situation. I'd say Jonah was slightly anxious when he was in the water, sucking down water, wondering if he was going to live when he got swallowed by the fish. But as Warren Wearsby points out, and, and you know, Warren Wearsby's got a great way of spinning a phrase, and I love this because it's so helpful. He says, notice that Jonah's prayer was born out of affliction, not affection. You know, that's a di- there's a difference. Many of our prayers, by the way, are born out of affliction. That's when we pray. That's what drives us to pray, is when things are going bad. When things are going good, man, God goes on the back burner. God, we stiff arm God off right tackle. He's coming to give us a hug and we, we just stiff arm him and go the other way when things are going good. Oftentimes it takes difficult circumstances to drive us back to him. When we could have it all the time, we wait and we allow that. And um, it, it, Wearsby also said, many people today, Jonah saw the will of God as something uh, to turn to in an emergency situation, not something to abide by moment by moment in his daily life. Isn't that interesting? We, all of a sudden, the, the table drops, our legs get taken out from under us, you know, experientially, and now all of a sudden we want the will of God. We couldn't care less about it five minutes ago. But now that affliction is hit, we want it. We want it. We want to grab hold of it. We want it so desperately. We'll, we'll do anything. We'll make vows. Lord, I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do this. And it takes oftentimes affliction. It did that for Jonah. Jonah's much like us in that way. And so the affliction he's referring to here is his near drowning experience. And he's thankful now that the fish has delivered him from being drowned. So even Jonah saw God's miraculous provision for him for not drowning in the sea. It was the fish. The fish was his salvation, not, not spiritual. The fish wasn't going to get him to heaven. The fish saved him from drowning. The fish saved him from losing his physical life. And you know, it's only God's mercy that, that he didn't allow Jonah to die in the water. That's the only reason Jonah didn't die in the ocean was God's mercy. And so it's just incredible. He should, have, he should have suffered the consequences. I mean, who thumbs their nose at God and gets away with it? I mean, he should not get away with that. Like I said last week, we should be able to read chapter one. Jonah should be like a, a, a four-verse book and it should be done. Jonah rebelled against God. God took him out. Next book, right? What comes after Jonah? right? Micah. Okay, Micah won. Let's get on to it. You know, we just finished the book of Jonah. But it's not because you've got a God who doesn't think like we do. We've got a God who, who is grace, who is love. He doesn't just act loving once in a while. He doesn't just act merciful once in a while. He is these very things. That's why the whole title of the series is God's Strange Work, because at some point, even the grace he extended to Jonah is going to be the same grace he extends to the Ninevites. But at some point, his long suffering runs out and he is also forced to execute justice because he is just. And that's why justice is God's strange work because he's so long suffering, wants to provide a way that people don't have to face justice. Just incredible. And I'll tell you the, the extra grace that we see in this story is God still has plans to utilize Jonah to deliver his message of grace to the Ninevites. If I was God, I'd have wrote this little joker off. I was like, give me someone that's faithful. 
Give me someone that'll just do what I say. I'm not going to work with this guy that's like running to Tarshish for, uh, for goodness sakes. Now I got to, you know, poke the throat of that fish and let him throw him up too. I mean, this is going to be terrible, you know? And so, but God's not that way. That's what's really crazy about that. He uses this phrase there, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. By the way, you'll notice this too. If you just kind of look down in your text for the rest of the chapter two, Jonah switches pronouns here. He was talking about God. Now he's talking directly to God. We actually have the recorded prayer and it's going to go you, 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 your, your, all the way through. You're going to see that the rest of the chapter. And so he uses this interesting word, Sheol. It's the place of departed souls. We've got a synonym for it in the New Testament called Hades in Greek. And it's basically where dead people go where they die. Jonah thought, you know what? I'm an inch from my death. I'm a, I'm a breath away from dying. And it's from that, uh, that perspective that he cries out to God. Now, it's really interesting because Jonah, again, being a, a theological scholar, a man of God, a prophet of God, most likely knew Psalm 139, eight. He kind of ignored that earlier, right? Where do I flee from your presence? Well, apparently he thought on the seat of Tarshish, I can flee from his presence. But in that Psalm, if you recall, let's, let's flip back there. So in uh, Psalm 139, eight, he specifically says, and this time he remembers it to his advantage. If, uh, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. In other words, even though I'm an inch of breaths away from death, you can still deliver me, God, is kind of the idea. So he cries out to God from Sheol in, in his mind. He literally thought the ocean would be his grave. And now he's going to explain his drowning experience as we get into verses three through six. Let's look at verses three through four. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Notice uh, the you, and we're going to see that, right? All, all of these you's. And it's so fascinating because I'm like, wait a minute, I thought the sailors cast him into the sea. Why is God getting blamed for this, right? I thought this happened. I thought this happened. But, but Jonah is, is looking past the human element and seeing the hand of God behind all of this. And what he's recognizing here is because I rebelled against you, God, you are disciplining me. So he sees that personal connection now, which is great. Now you could say that that is indicating that he is confessing, right? That he's admitting that he was wrong. And I could see that. I think that's an argument uh, from silence. just not really, uh, you know, specifically recorded here. And so what he's recognizing here is the fact that he got thrown in the sea, that was divine discipline. That was punishment. He deserved it in his rebellion against God to go preach this message to the Ninevites. And then he starts quoting the Psalms, and we're going to look at these here. But of evidently the seas, the waves, the underwater currents, they overwhelmed him for some time before the fish swallowed him. Anybody ever, one of my biggest nightmares in, in life, like if you really want to torture me, it, like go take me out in the ocean and throw me overboard. Like uh, just swimming in the ocean. And I know some people are like looking at me like, that's fun. What are you talking about? For me, that's a nightmare. But you imagine being under the water the currents grabbing you, throwing you here, throwing you there, not allowing you to get to the surface. This is what Jonah experienced. And let's look at a couple of these Psalms because I want you to see that, that Jonah is, is now, uh, you could say, aligning his thinking with God's thinking. He's aligning his thinking with the word of God. And let's just kind of move through these quickly. Psalm 42.7, you're gonna recognize the wording that we just read. 
Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Go to 69.2. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Go to Psalm 88.7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. And you, so you see, he's in the boat, or in the boat, he's in the fish, right? He's recognized, uh, he's starting to recognize the connection between these Psalms and his, his experience. He's starting to align his thinking with the word of God. He's starting to take a little bit of a divine viewpoint here in terms of why he is under the water. And so what's described here, as I mentioned, is just a terrifying struggle. This is him struggling fighting for his life in order to drown. And you know, what's, what's so funny is he was so glib about it earlier. 115, ah, oh, just throw me in the water. It'll, it'll stop, just throw me in. Not realizing that once you get in, it's a little bit different story. It's like when someone says, do you want to go on a jog with me? And I'm like, oh yeah, I can go on a jog. 200 yards down the road, I'm like, this was a bad decision. <laughs> and, and that's what Jonah is experiencing here. Then he said, I've been cast out of your sight. Literally, I have been expelled from God's sight. See, and I think what Jonah thought in that moment, you know what? I've pushed God too far. He's given up on me. He's, he's abandoned me. He, he, he quit. He quit on me. I pushed him to the level that he turned his back on me. You know, oftentimes this is what our children think when we're disciplining them, right? Oh, my parents don't love me anymore, etc. But discipline always indicates love and concern. And Jonah just didn't recognize at this point that it was discipline. He thought he'd been cast out of God's sight. He thought he was no longer under the watchful eye or care of Yahweh. And so he's forced to do what? Stop looking horizontally. Stop trying to swim to the surface. Look up. Or in this case, look into the mouth of a fish swimming towards you, because that's going to be your deliverance. God wants to provide for him. And that's why he says, yet I look again to your holy temple. This was, again, Jonah's way of saying he turned his eyes and he focused on the Lord. He, he literally focused on the Lord. Now, the, the, the Jew, um, for the Jew, the temple always represented God's presence, right? But how do you find, and they would oftentimes, like you see this in the book of Daniel, right? He's, he's facing the direction toward the temple. He's praying out that window we learned from Daniel 6. And that's what they would often do. They would face the direction of the temple, and then they would, they would pray because that represented God's presence. But how do you gain your bearing inside the, the belly of a fish? And so we're going to see as Jonah's praying toward the temple, he's praying toward where God occupies the temple in heaven. We'll see that here uh, as we go forward in, in this chapter. And now we see the waters are closing in. Verses 5 through 6, they surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And you see Jonah just get very descriptive here in what he was facing. Very vivid language, near drowning experience. Not only surrounded his body, but you see it was closing in to take his soul, his very life. This is what he was seeing. Now, those of you that have ever been scuba diving, you know how it feels as you go deeper in the water, how, how water is strong. Water actually puts pressure on you that you can get caught down there and blown around against your will. How you can go down and think that you're right under the boat and you look up and the boat is, you know, 50 yards that way. You didn't even realize 
that you'd gotten moved. This is Jonah's experience underneath. Apparently, weeds had been entangling him. He, he had been thrown around like a rag doll. And you can see why when the fish came and swallowed him, you can see why he's like, oh, praise God, I just got saved from this getting thrown around in the water and almost losing his life. He says he went down to the moorings of the mountains. Uh, it's, it's, it's like Jonah describes himself at the base of the mountains. Now, the Mediterranean Sea is very deep. I, I think that was his perspective, like he was hitting the ground. <laughs> he was hitting something. I don't think he was hitting the ground in certain areas because it's like 1,000 feet, I think even maybe more deep. But he, it felt like he was. He was being crashed into something. These currents underneath, the raging storm underneath the surface was banging him back and forth. And so again, you see this very vivid language. The, the bars are closing behind him. It's the, the idea of like he's in a prison cell. It was locking it in. Have you ever, I've actually been in a prison where they shut the, I mean, not in prison as a, <laughs> that came out wrong, uh, as a guest visiting somebody. But I've been in there where the bars shut behind you. It's a very uh, ominous feeling. It sounds just like it does on the movies, except it's, it's louder when you're there in person. This is what Jonah is describing here. It's like he's a prisoner. The, the, the gates are getting closed behind him. He's getting ready to lose his life. And then he says this, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And so when everything looked lost and hopeless, God intervened. I, I love this, this phrase here in, in this verse because it's an Old Testament version of, of our, one of our favorite phrases in the New Testament, but God. This is the way it was going but God intervened. We were deserving of death, but God sent Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with him. God, when God interjects into a situation, the whole game changes. And that's what we see for the life of Jonah. And so he saves Jonah via the fish, but I wanna point out something, and I think this has great applicational value for each one of us. Before he saves him with the fish, Jonah swallowed a little water. You notice that? He, he struggled a little bit for his life. He swallowed a little, wire, a, a, a little water. And so although we may not rebel at the same level that Jonah does, there are times where God allow, is gonna allow us to swallow some water in discipline or swallow some water in a trial. And it's not designed that God is trying to be difficult to us. What's it designed to do? I need to look up. In fact, when you're drowning, what's your best chance for not drowning? Put your face up because you, be, you might get out of the water quicker, right? You're trying to breathe looking horizontally. You're just going to keep sucking in water. And so looking up is actually the key. And so Jonah uh, realized this at this point. In fact, he only had one place to look. And we're going to close here with verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. When my soul fainted within me, I inserted a word, then I remembered the Lord. And it's sad, it's sad, isn't it? We kind of addressed this earlier, but it's sad to think that oftentimes despair is what has to happen to take us to the point where we remember the Lord. Jonah was no different. Um, it's sad for us that, that realize that the God of the universe whose love for you cannot even be measured, that's how much love he has for you, that it takes despair and trials and difficult circumstances for us to even remember him. Josh was sharing earlier how he can go through a whole day without even considering the Lord. I couldn't relate to that comment at all. 
I mean, I could totally relate to that comment. And oftentimes it takes despair to say, oh yeah, God. I mean, the oh yeah, God moment should happen the second we roll out of bed in the morning and should continue every moment throughout the course of the day. But oftentimes it doesn't. Jonah was like us. When my soul fainted within me, then I remembered the Lord. Then I took him into consideration. Then I'm interested in his will. But oftentimes it takes those kind of circumstances to drive us there. When he says his soul fainted, it means to ebb away or to grow faint. Interesting Hebrew stem year, uh, used here. You don't get it kind of in the English translation. But in any case, that he realized it was his own actions that caused this fainting. So there's some element of ownership of his sin there that he caused this. There's a causal aspect to this uh, Hebrew stem. So he was the one who caused his soul to faint. He realized it was his fault. He, he was responsible for that. But you know what? Jonah was just as needy before the potential drowning. He was just as needy during the potential drowning. And he was just as needy while he was in the belly of the fish. He was just as needy when he's going to engage in his trip to Nineveh. He's just as needy for every day for the rest of his life. Oftentimes, we don't realize that either. It's true of us too. We're just as needy at every moment of the life. And so his prayer again is directed to God in the temple, again, representing God's presence. Now, next week, we're going to see that Jonah himself takes some steps to be restored to fellowship with God. We also see that he's going to make a commitment to pay what he's vowed. We'll we'll look at what that means next week. And then guess what? He's off to Nineveh, which is kind of cool. We're like, okay, come on. Maybe Jonah's got it now. And we'll see that kind (laughs) of, he's kind of got it, Uh, but he's going to head to Nineveh next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for this lesson. May we, may we not see this, this story and this teaching this morning as some far-off story about a fish, that we would understand the implications, the, the principles that we could even apply in our life uh, today. And may we see uh, some of the mistakes in Jonah's life, may, you know, mirror some of the mistakes in our, but that we would learn from those, and that we would more consistently walk in total dependence upon you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.